I'm Mary Edwards, and this is Notes Between Sessions, stories and conversations that explore the personal nuances of the creative process, and anything else in between. Episode 3, The Sound of Synchrony, Dr. Sarah Weaver. Haven't we been doing this all along? And by this I mean communicating via digital technology. For some time now, we've been sharing information, words, images, music, from a distance, from what often seems like another stratosphere. I'm just going to leave this right here, the saying goes, sometimes in a sardonic tone, more often as a way to hold up a social mirror when we're looking to share something to extend outward in this virtual form, whether or not we engage beyond our initial offering. But it proliferates, and to our amazement, we're taken aback when asked to rise to the challenge of reaching out to one another at a time where tactility is at a premium. We were bound to see this coming, that we have long been in the space age, and that we have been living in science fact, not fiction. It's quite useful, and at times daunting, to maneuver through this liminal space as it existing in an alternate universe. Dr. Sarah Weaver, a New York-based contemporary composer and conductor, works internationally as a specialist in network arts, which utilizes the internet as an artistic medium and is also conceived as a metaphor for localized works. As the director of NowNet Arts, Inc. and NowNet Arts Ensemble, she is an innovator in live performance via the internet by musicians and artists in different geographic locations. Events take place over very high bandwidth internet utilizing specialized network audio and video technology for low latency, multi-channel performance quality experience. In other words, even when you're not there, you're there. Chicago-born Sarah Weaver was raised in a family of humanitarians, and she's carried that ethos into such works as Concerts for Peace, performed at international sites in Banff, Belfast, South Korea, Nairobi, and in New York at the United Nations headquarters, and Universal Synchrony Music, a collaboration with the NASA Kepler K2 mission. For Sarah Weaver, space has been a practical frontier, and she's literally utilized it in her music that also integrates influences of jazz, contemporary classical, improvisation, computer music, world music, and innovative individual music languages of sound painting, the gestural language of composer Walter Thompson, and deep listening, the practice of composer Pauline Oliveros. This episode was recorded in February 2020 and comes to you from the Harvest Works Digital Media Arts Center in Soho, New York. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks so much, Mary. Very happy to be here. You are involved in a field of music called Network Arts. Would that be the formal name? Yes, yes. Well, network Arts, uh, also known as Telematic Music, uh, Distributed Performance, uh, Internet Arts. Uh, there's a number of names floating around as it's an emerging field, mm -hmm. uh, but a broader umbrella is uh, Network Arts. So I uh, yeah, use that term. Uh, so this is for uh, live performance uh, via the Internet with uh, performers in different geographic locations. Uh, so I've been involved in this work since uh, 2006, so a long time, um, doing a lot of research and uh, early performances, and um, have really found this medium uh, to be uh, quite profound, uh, to be playing with 
musicians and artists in uh, different places and uh, have really experienced uh, that this is its own medium, right? In addition to um, uh, being able to play pieces and maybe you play locally, uh, playing them over the internet is uh, of its, its own type of space and has its own properties to work with, uh, a very dimensional uh, type of experience. Uh, so it's really compelled me to continue uh, and uh, focus on, on that medium. Uh, but in addition, I've been a large ensemble composer for about 22 years now. Um, and I think some of the uh, techniques I've been using with the large ensemble uh, became amplified in also this network arts uh, scene. So I started to really see them as related. And really a lot of the trends in new music are trends that you can translate also to the uh, network arts setting. Um, so as I explored this more, I really try to think just more about network and <laughs> uh, and how that was operating on a lot of my work um, and really also took that down to the solo and duo levels. So that's really where um, I got into this body of work synchrony series uh, that has a lot of uh, connection um, on the solo level and the chamber music, the large ensemble, and the uh, network arts. Uh, they really started to see them as related, and I really focused in on this uh, idea of synchrony. A few years ago, you invited me down to Stony Brook to participate in the conference with Doug Van Nort. Yes. <laughs> Out of Canada. Mm -hmm. And it was really, really cool to be involved with this, um, this piece in which we were doing something called sound painting. So do you want to tell people more about sound painting and then we can go back to the beginning to when you were first learning about sound painting and how you got involved in that? Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, so sound painting is a live composing language um, for, with uh, gesture as a uh, uh, approximately 1,500 gestures and growing. Uh, it was uh, originated by the composer Walter Thompson, yes, and the Walter Thompson Orchestra and several members of that group, and um, now it has really spread a lot into Europe and a lot of other places. Um, so that, that has been growing really since the 1970s, yeah. Um, so it's a very uh, thorough language uh, that works for music, also for theater, dance, visual arts. It's designed as a multidisciplinary language. Yes, so uh, sound painting I have found uh, translates well into network arts because <laughs> uh, you're dealing a lot with um, parameters and uh, processing and you're not so dependent on the steady beat, um, which as you can imagine working uh, over the internet, uh, there are certain latencies involved, uh, really due to the speed of light, no matter what technology you may have. <laughs> mm -hmm. the highest, even the highest technology. There's a physical there's, limitation, there's some yes. To that. <laughs> yes, yes. So, uh, working with a gestural language like sound painting, um, you can also think of it as related to processing electronic samples um, that. Uh, you have a, a certain time breath uh, that you can work with and still uh, have effective structures and um, expressions yeah, with that language. So um, I got involved really early on um, 
guess in uh, in sound painting, I, I was the first person that was trained in the full language uh, with Walter. I met Walter uh, in 1998. Yeah, when I had uh, transferred to the University of Michigan, and I saw a flyer uh, on the wall <laughs> um, that said it was for the Creative Arts Orchestra. They were having a performance with the guest Walter Thompson and it was going to involve improvisation uh, and conducting. And I had never seen those two elements together uh, before um, at my young age. <laughs> um, so I went to the concert and my I know my mouth was just dropped. My jaw was dropped <laughs> for the entire time. I just couldn't believe it. Um, and I went up to Walter afterwards, and uh, he was uh, really very kind to me and um, invited me out to New York that summer for the Sound Painting Think Tank, uh, which was happening upstate where a lot of people would gather. And it was at the Burcliff Artist Colony yeah, up in Woodstock. And uh, people would go and we'd be developing the language um, with Walter there. So that was also my first time to New York. I, I took the train <laughs> from Chicago. Um, it was really a very uh, memorable uh, experience. And from there, I really started working very closely with Walter, and I developed a sound painting uh, orchestra of my own um, at, uh, while I was still in college. Uh, and then when I graduated, I moved out to New York to be uh, Walter's associate. Uh, so then we worked here with the Walter Thompson Orchestra, and uh, the, we had also the New York Sound Painting Orchestra uh, and a number of different projects at that time. Um, so it was really uh, uh, a special time you know, to be uh, trained fully in that language and also to help develop it. Um, I was uh, so early on in the language that I was one of the people that helped develop the grammar of it because <laughs> uh, we had a lot of gestures floating around, but we really needed more of a structure for that language. So the who, what, how, when, um, that was... Uh, uh, definitely during that time that I was there that we were not even just developing the grammar of mm. it. Um, but uh, there have been other uh, gestural languages, um, especially uh, contemporaries of Walter. There was kind of a wave of these <laughs> uh, from my understanding of the history of it uh, with Butch Morris' conduction. Uh, John Zorn had Cobra. Um, I think Sun Ra had a language. And... Even people back in the like John Philip Sousa, I know, did some gestures to rearrange uh, his marches mm -hmm. <laughs> on the spot. Um, so it's not a uh, uh, original concept on its own, you know, but um, but developing it into that uh, full language mm -hmm. of sound painting was a very specific um, fleshing out. So of, it's part of a genre of gestural language that's used primarily for music and the arts in general. Yes, yes, yeah, and for improvisers, mm -hmm. yeah, in particular. Um, and even early in the days, I, I hosted a multiple systems of conducting symposium <laughs> where we brought a lot of these languages together and had um, people try them all, uh, all day. So um, that's something I, I want to um, get back to one of these days. That was a really uh, cool event. So there's other languages besides Walter's language. Yes, yes, but they all have their own uh, functions, yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and Walter was really the one to make so many gestures. It's like its own sign language, basically. Um, so that was, it was the most uh, thorough. Yeah. Is there, in fact, a correlation between American sign language and Walter's gestures? Have yes. Have you studied both to see if there are any parallels there? Well, that's a, a good question, and one that has uh, yeah, come up in the sound painting circles, uh, that... Um, 
there are perhaps one or two gestures uh, that are similar, but um, it's not based on sign language. Uh, and I guess you, you can imagine there's uh, so many different languages in the world, uh, and also in the world of signing, that uh, there may be a whole language that's completely different um, system of signing. Yes. Yeah, and perhaps for it's for really for a different purpose. I would say a yeah, sign language. You're really trying to communicate words and like like a spoken language, uh, where uh, sound painting is more of an arts language. And I always try to give myself a vantage point whenever I go to one of your performances, so I can see you and also get a sense of how the ensemble is responding. Yes. To you. And I noticed that you're using this gestural language. Are you mixing languages? Are you mixing conducting skills? Yes, and yes. So since those early days, I mean, there's times when I talk about when I was uh, with Walter, that was about 20 years ago now. Um, so I, I learned the, the language at that time. Um, and then uh, he moved to Europe uh, because he had a lot more work there for sound painting in those days. <laughs> um, and so, so he was away, and then I was really kind of developing my, more of my own compositional direction. And so I, my gestural language has become a, uh, say a hybrid of um, sound painting, uh, original gestures. Uh, I was also trained as a classical conductor, so some gestures come from this, or uh, movement systems such as Tai Chi. Uh, so uh, I have really um, has developed my own hybrid language, but certainly um, rooted in sound painting um, and also the way that I use gesture is different from sound painting. Uh, if you're doing a sort of a purist uh, open form sound painting, uh, there's really not uh, anything planned ahead other than the set of gestures that everyone knows and then you make a piece from the gestures or you may insert um, uh, composed material uh, but it's really more about the gestures and the direction I've gone more is to um, uh, more compositional, right? We're writing down palettes, and, uh, and even palettes is a term from sound painting at the, t <laughs> at the time, but that kind of concept of more, uh, I guess I work more uh, like a uh, electronic artist might be processing samples, so I write a lot of um, events, shall we say, and then I have specific gestures that are assigned to those events. So there may only be three or four gestures that I've composed to process uh, that section of the piece, uh, which is um, a, a different way you know, of, of working with gesture. Yeah. Um, and again, it's just really more, uh, more specific to my particular expression. You worked with NASA at one point. Yes, yes. So this came up um, because I had done, uh, as mentioned, I've been involved in uh, network arts for a long time now. And, <laughs> and the early days, it was really more just getting the technology connected. And it's like, can I hear you? Great. Can you hear me? Great. And that was that was about it. <laughs> and then we did it in Proverbs. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, sounded, it sounded so much more illustrious. <laughs> I mean, it was all about, you know, just getting the connection, and we barely could get that going, you know. Um, and that really took a lot of effort just to get the tech up and running. Right. Um, 
And so, yeah, once we kind of got past that phase, uh, then it was really um, you know, a lot of collaborative projects and trying to connect with as many people as we possibly could all over the world and um, develop you know, more compositional approaches. And um, that was really a very um, expansive time, right? And uh, then kind of after that, we really started to focus in more on composer-led projects. So it became much uh, more developed uh, with the, um, the artistic uh, approach uh, where we didn't have to worry about whether we were going to um, have a signal or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so then there was a lot of composer-led projects, and I was doing also projects uh, for peace, mm -hmm. right? So I was uh, working with the United Nations, and um, we were doing uh, projects with just with, uh, locations that were very far away. So it was really for my master's degree um, that I was trying to uh, establish um, perception of synchrony uh, across the greatest uh, geographic distance uh, that we could have, um, I guess, on Earth. So I had a project between, uh, we had a group in New York and we had a group in um, South Korea and a group in Beijing. And we were all connected and that was um, quite far away. <laughs> and, and we did these projects that were designed for the slight delays that we had. And um, I, did, I interviewed the audience afterwards and um, nobody, uh, either, you know, people didn't hear the delay uh, and they were even wondering why I was asking the question. Um, so we had really transcended <laughs> that aspect and um, really created this perception of synchrony, um, which in itself would be this uh, uh, peaceful action, I guess. Um, and then from there, uh, I was moving on more into my uh, doctorate work, and I was getting more conceptual about distance um, and thinking, well, okay, how about as far as we can perceive uh, and, uh, you know, and that got me into ideas about deep space and I had always um, had an interest I guess in the mystique of astronomy <laughs> yes but this was really my first engagement with that and thinking well I wonder if we can get some data gasonification uh, was getting popular and say like, well what if we get data from deep space and see if we can uh, sonify um, some objects and then create a, some type of perception of synchrony. Um, so at that time I was going to um, give a presentation at a session at Stanford University. Uh, so Stanford uh, is the uh, Karma yeah, Center and Chris Chafe is the director there and he's the one who developed the Jack Trip uh, audio software that we use for this work. And um, he had made a connection uh, for me. Uh, he was also working with, there's a local um, NASA scientist there uh, that was interesting to connect uh, with Karma and was doing scientification for scientific purpose. And he was involved with the Kepler mission. Uh, one of the lead uh, uh, analysts yeah, for the Kepler mission, John Jenkins. Uh, yes, and uh, incidentally, he had been a trombonist uh, earlier in his life. <laughs> so, so for the listeners who don't know, Sarah, you started off on the trombone. Well, I started on the piano. Yes. <laughs> yes, when I was uh, six years old, yes, I started on the piano. Yes, and then when the uh, school band program uh, uh, came up, um, when I was in fifth grade, yeah, that's when I also picked up the trombone, and I played the trombone for... Uh, 20 years? Yeah. yeah. 
And then you recently put it down, or you put it down some time ago? I did. I, I actually put it down um, when I got into network arts uh, more seriously uh, because of the demands um, that that was uh, placing on my time. And uh, also I was really honing in more um, on being a composer and conductor. And uh, the trombone uh, is, was a, a wonderful chapter in my life. <laughs> and uh, really had a lot of wonderful memorable experiences with it. My sister also played the trombone and now we have uh, nieces and nephews that are playing oh, the trombone. Great. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so definitely a trombone family. Yeah. It's funny whenever and this is a completely different genre altogether but whenever I think of well, knowing that you're from Chicago mm -hmm. and being associated with the trombone and I think about Jim Pankow, one of my favorite trombonists. Oh, great. So um, when, I think, when I think of the trombone, I'm like, oh, you know, he's, he's my go-to guy. Sure. But, mm -hmm. um, yes, well, brass is very um, uh, prevalent in the Midwest, shall it we is. say. Yes, it yes. Is. A, lot of, a lot of the brass bands came out of, you know, whether they were uh, pop or jazz. Did you grow up in a household of, um, of jazz listening? Not so much, yeah. Um, uh, more the the classical side, mm -hmm. so I would say, and uh, pop music. Um, I had some exposure to jazz, uh, yeah, by being um, yeah, around Chicago, and also um, in our school program we had the jazz band, and I was in that. Um, but uh, I didn't have it so much growing up, though my my father had a. Uh, John Coltrane album, Ascension, in his collection. <laughs> a couple. That's a <laughs> yes, yes. Ascension is essential. Yes. <laughs> in, in every listener's collection. When you came to New York and Walter brought you over and you were getting involved with um, in the sound painting community, what was your tie-in then to... When uh, Walter left for Europe, I was still uh, in upstate New York, <laughs> and um, I was supposed to kind of keep the New York part going uh, there. Uh, but I was also looking around for other people, um, and I had uh, learned that Pauline Oliveris was nearby, uh, just two two towns over. <laughs> um, and I had known about her. Uh, Really also from my college days, um, I had taken a class called Creativity and Consciousness uh, that Ed Sarris taught, and that was really my first uh, kind of exposure to uh, connections between uh, music and meditation and creativity. And so I learned uh, a bit at that time about Pauline's work and the uh, deep listening practice. And so uh, when I was upstate, uh, then I decided to look up Pauline and I uh, went over to the Deep Listening Institute and knocked on the door. Uh, <laughs> and um, she was always a very uh, community-oriented person and very welcoming for anybody who wanted to uh, engage with uh, her work and her practice. And so she was uh, yeah, taking on uh, interns and, um, and also people to uh, learn her practice. Yeah, so uh, that turned into uh, six years of um, very uh, close engagement with her um, to the point where I was living above the Deep Listening Institute in the apartment <laughs> and <laughs> really entrenched um, in the Deep Listening uh, community and also with, with, uh, with Pauline there. And uh, so I got my Deep Listening certificate and uh, I worked for her at the Deep Listening Institute uh, and I also 
um, became her apprentice uh, when we were going to uh, continue that work forward. Um, so really, she, so she had been a, a research professor uh, at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and so she was also bringing me over there uh, to help with the teaching, and um, she was the one who really introduced me to uh, network arts or telematic music. That yeah. was going to be my next question. Yes. <laughs> it seems like that's the logical next step when you're at, yes. uh, you know, what is it, R RPI? RPI, right? yes. Yes, that's the place to be. It's like, it's like an MIT, but in New York. Yes, yes, exactly. So yeah, they were really technology forward mm -hmm. and very early adopters. Um, working with Chris Chafe and his uh, uh, Jack Trip uh, program, and then uh, also uh, in that very very early time, uh, we connected with uh, Mark Dresser at uh, University of California, San Diego, who was also getting involved in the medium at the time. So we had what was called the Telematic Circle. Uh, we had a joint seminar. Uh, between our three locations, RPI, Stanford, and UCSD. And so we had uh, joint classes and joint performances uh, that year. And that uh, was really what... Um, I, I had also been involved with Pauline the year before. Um, I was doing some projects with her uh, when I was in Chicago. Um, uh, in 2006, we had a performance. So I, there's a, a venue in Chicago called The Empty Bottle, <laughs> and Dad Gonston was running a festival called the Chicago Calling Festival. And so I had a performance with uh, my group there, connected with Pauline's group at RPI. Uh, so that was the first time I did it. And then we also had a performance out of Loyola University uh, in Chicago, connected to RPI, and uh, two other locations. I know one was uh, University of California, Santa Barbara, and I think there was there was one more. I'd have to, oh, Stanford, of course. Yes. yes. <laughs> so we had a four location, uh, yeah, concert together uh, before I got to RPI. But in any case, um, uh, yeah, once we got to RPI, then it was really more um, solidified, I guess, as a uh, a specialization, yeah, that I got into. So, um, with the deep listening practice, uh, what I was really interested in about it was I felt like it was um, tapping into uh, a source for the music, right? Um, that was um, had more uh, substance uh, for me. Like when I would hear uh, Pauline's work, and also people working with this practice, and just this idea of the sort of dimensionality in music. It was something I related to uh, very strongly, and I wanted to really uh, engage with the deep listening practice to um, also be able to access that type of source uh, for the creativity. And I think it also um, helped me to be able to uh, think and be in this uh, very multidimensional uh, space of network arts, uh, because it's uh, a new, I say, type of space <laughs> to be working in, um, and to be kind of processing all these different um, spaces and people and. Um, conducting via video with people. <laughs> and there's uh, a lot of sort of leaps of the imagination uh, to make, and especially in the early days. Um, so I think that that practice um, uh, really helped me to be able to do that also, you know, um, on a more fundamental level, shall we say. Yeah, so that, that was uh, my work with uh, Pauline at the time. Yeah. How did you meet your ensemble? So I have written for large ensembles, as I mentioned, for about 22 years. Yeah, 
um, but it's been at various iterations yeah, of the group. But uh, this group that I've had for um, over a decade now, you know, the core players, um, was kind of a, a new chapter of um, finding performers that, well, I w had moved to New York City by that time, so that was uh, <laughs> a shift of, of uh, culture and access to performers um, for me. And so finding performers that were um, interested in the types of uh, languages and concepts, right, that I was working with. Um, and at the time, I was very uh, uh, collaborating very closely with Mark Dresser, and we formed a group together. <laughs> um, and so uh, some of the performers were people that um, he had been working with for uh, decades, <laughs> and uh, some were... Um, also from my connections, uh, I had run the International Society for Improvised Music uh, for a few years, and so I knew some people also from those days uh, that were in New York I was able to bring into the group. So, um, so it was really more, you know, thinking about, well, who are the most uh, ideal performers um, that are in the city here that um, would work with uh, this this type of work, who were okay with following gestures, <laughs> uh, who could read, uh, who could improvise, and um, was open to experimentation, right? Uh, but then also wanting it to be a very diverse group, right? So, um, so diverse uh, culturally, but also in the instrumentation and uh, in gender. So we were looking for a lot of balance, um, you know, within the group, and then. Uh, so we did uh, a number of projects uh, together with Mark early on, and then it became uh, my own group, uh, the Sarah Weaver Ensemble. I'm eyeing your your CD here. Yes. So let's get into it. Okay. So yeah, so this uh, synchrony series, right, music of Sarah Weaver and collaborations. All right. So this is uh, works from. Uh, the past uh, couple of years, right, as I mentioned. So on this first track, uh, Node 111, <laughs> uh, Volumes 1 through 3. So that's been a solo project that um, I've been working with uh, Jerry Hemingway, the drum set player, um, the extraordinary drum set player. And you've been touring um, with Jerry for about eight years? Yes, longer? yes, well, on and off, yes, with this particular project, yes, that, mm -hmm. that we've had. Um, so, so node one one one. I think about the multiplicity of self, right? Mm -hmm. So this is getting more into the uh, network concepts on the solo level. So this was really um, the initial project that I did um, for uh, these concepts on the solo level. So this project really started in yeah twenty eleven, seeing here. So <laughs> uh, that's grown uh, since then. So this is uh, five years. We developed the volumes one through three, right? For for this work. Um, and then in track two, right, this is a symmetry of presence, uh, more recent piece from 2018 uh, with David Taylor on the bass trombone and myself on electronics. Uh, so that piece also involves uh, graphic notation <laughs> and <laughs> um, uh, also his particular language on the bass trombone, uh, which is very uh, unique and powerful. Um, and this idea of symmetry of presence uh, certainly uh, calls up this idea of network arts where you have um, people in different locations as a type of a, a symmetry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. 
and a lot of what matters in that medium is the presence, right, uh, in any form. Okay, uh, and then we have uh, track three on this disc one, right, so enter here. So this was a more abstract uh, concept of uh, the idea of here, right, but if we can get um, uh, the perception of people in other locations, right, um, being uh, also present uh, in quote-unquote the local space. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but not just people and places, but also, uh, I guess, thinking multidimensionally so that um, it's a, an extended concept of here. I've heard, I think, about three iterations of that piece. And for each listening, uh, it's become increasingly cinematic. Mm -hmm. And it's it's not meant to take a particular form. At least that's my my perception of it. And yet it does seem to uh, at least the third time that I heard it, uh, I'm seeing like more frame by frame as I'm listening. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Well, it has been a piece that's been in development uh, since 2017, um, and I guess it is. Uh, uh, it's a larger abstract concept, so it can take on, on different forms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> around it's kind of an axis, yeah, axis type of piece. Yeah. Um, and you were mentioning David Taylor before, and I, he's a standout to me. Um, David Taylor's playing is very primal. Yes, very yes. very <laughs> primal. I mean, more so than the others. I, and that's what I appreciate about the ensemble is that the the means and the ways in which uh, they're performing, you know, individually and together, is it's conversational, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it's also it's that primal language. It's not, it's not necessarily the, you know, the the language that we know, you know, in which we say, you know, hi, I need this over here. Can you bring this over here? It's it's there's a want and a need and an urgency mm. that I hear particularly in David's playing. Yes, yes, very good type of raw player. It, it's more raw. It's like it's more. For lack of a more, uh, for a better word, it's more grabby. It's, mm. <laughs> you know, it's like I want, I need, and it, and it attains too. Mm -hmm. So that's that's what I that's what I come away with each time I hear and see your performances. Mm -hmm. Yes, and he has a whole um, multiphonics language. Mm -hmm. So we say too that really brings that type of quality out. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, and Dave, I met um, when I was seventeen. A long time ago, <laughs> because of the uh, because of the trombone because of the trombone. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. When I was uh, a teenager, there were these um, trombone weekends and trombone weeks happening at the University of Illinois uh, that I went to, and he was a guest at one of those. And it was really one of the first times I heard uh, new music on the trombone. Um, and I went to meet him afterwards uh, backstage, and we took a picture together. <laughs> we both had long trench black trench coats on. <laughs> <laughs> and I asked him to sign his CD, and he wrote, "Thanks for liking my coat." <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. So it was the beginning of something special. It really was. <laughs> yes, and he was a big inspir early inspiration. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's been really yeah special to uh, be able to reconnect with him uh, in my adult life here, and he's. Uh, just been so uh, supportive and, and connective in, in all this work. So, 
yeah, enter here. Uh, you mentioned the other performers on this. So Yoon Sun Choi, a wonderful vocalist. Uh, Julie Ferrara on the oboe, who I uh, knew from the sound painting day. She was also a Walter Thompson Orchestra <laughs> person. Um, Sarah Schoenbeck on the bassoon. Yeah. And uh, James Zoller on the trumpet. Uh, Min Chao Fen on the pipa. Uh, Jane Ira Bloom, soprano saxophone. Ned Rothenberg on woodwinds, and David Taylor on bass trombone, uh, Demin Maroney on piano, uh, Mark Dresser on bass, and Jerry Hemingway on percussion, and myself conducting. So it's really, uh, have a, the instrumentation is a type of inter here uh, mixture. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, yes, um, in addition to the musical approaches, yeah. So that... Yeah, that's the Sarah Weaver Ensemble. It's the uh, Universal Synchrony Music, uh, the Kepler K2 uh, version, which was the Nounet Arts Ensemble. So we had performers in uh, New York, Chicago, and Toronto for that piece that was performed at the Nounet Arts Festival. I worked on it for six years. Uh, I know we talked about it a little bit earlier. I'm now looking at the next iteration of that, uh, working with the TESS mission. Um, so that's another mission. That's uh, John Jenkins, uh, a scientist, been involved with where they're uh, searching for habitable planets, uh, but now closer to Earth. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember when we were working with the Kepler mission, I, got, I asked them, I say, well, these are objects 1,000 or 3,000 light years away. Are they going to sound a lot different? if they're 500 light years away or 5,000. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And he said, well, we don't know yet, but wait for this test mission. Right. So, <laughs> so it's been really special to be able to uh, evolve the work with him as the missions evolve. A special connection there. <laughs> yeah, we just, we just fist bumped, and, and uh, now we're determining uh, who <laughs> who has the strongest death grip, <laughs> kung fu grip going on. Sarah Weaver, it is a pleasure to hear all about your work. And before we depart, how about those pies? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So um, yeah, Mary is referring to the uh, uh, tradition I have shared uh, with her about uh, my family's uh, Thanksgiving pie festival. If you really want to throw your family for a loop, create something called a latency pie where they taste it, they don't know what they're tasting until five minutes later, they're like, was that in fact nutmeg? Be a new genre. Right. <laughs> combining the, the network arts with baking and see how that works out. Yes, yes. New idea, folks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Sarah Weaver, it's been a pleasure. Oh, likewise, Mary. Yes, thank you so much and, and for all of your, your work, uh, which I uh, uh, deeply admire. Oh, thank you. Yes. But it's about you today. <laughs> Experience more on this episode's guest, Sarah Weaver, including performance dates and project releases at sarahweaver.org. Her latest recording synchrony series, Music of Sarah Weaver and Collaborators, is available through her website. Your support is appreciated and helps to keep making this podcast possible. Thank you for listening and for being here. I'm Mary Edwards, and this is Notes Between Sessions. <laughs>